As a church, we're going through the book of Acts um, and have been for quite some time. And it documents the birth of the church and the early days of Christianity. And today we're moving on to a new phase in the book. Basically, up to now, we've seen how the church started in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's what Jesus had said to them. Jesus said to the disciples, you'll be my witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, uh, the key player had been Peter. OK, and uh, Jesus had also said to them, though, that you'll be my witnesses in uh, Judea and Samaria as well, the areas around Jerusalem. And we've seen that happen as well. We've seen how uh, the church spreads and the good news of Jesus spreads from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions, to the areas I guess we know now as Israel. OK. And uh, Philip went to Samaria. Again, Peter, very important at this phase, he traveled around a bit more. And we've seen uh, how also in that time, uh, in the last few weeks, how God has changed the thinking of the disciples by showing them that the good news of Jesus is not just for Jews, but for anyone. And it's taken a little bit of kind of work from God to change their mindsets on those things. But they got there uh, by uh, about Acts chapter 12. They're there. Okay. Now, with all that in place, then, from this point on, the book of Acts focuses on how the message of Jesus uh, and, the, and the church as well goes to what they would have seen as the ends of the earth. Jesus had said, you'd be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and it's to the ends of the earth that we're going to uh, see uh, the church going for the rest of this book and we'll definitely see that starting to happen today. Now I know for the, many of us uh, Peter would be a bible hero, we love Peter, uh, any particular Peter fans here today, good, fantastic, that's great, well I've got some bad news for you, we're not going to see Peter much anymore, goodbye Peter, he kind of pops up a little bit in a couple of chapters for a very short period of time. But basically, uh, the book now shifts uh, to another character who's going to take centre stage, uh, which is Paul. And for the remainder of Acts, uh, we really see uh, what are known as Paul's three missionary journeys. And you'll hear much more about them in the weeks uh, to come. But today we see the very start of those, of the first of those three missionary journeys. And uh, basically what happens is this. Uh, the leaders of the church in Antioch, of which Paul is one, now Antioch would be in what we call now Syria, uh, they're having a prayer meeting together and they feel the Holy Spirit is telling them uh, to send Paul off with another leader, with Barnabas, to the regions beyond. So then, are you ready for the story of how the gospel really started going to the world outside of Israel? Yes, fantastic. Are you ready to see the Apostle Paul really getting into his stride? Yes. Well, Acts 13, verses 4 to 12, go a little something like this. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Well, 
that's quite some start. The mission to the Gentiles kicks off good and proper, uh, and you've got fireworks. You couldn't really ask for much more than this. You've got Paul, as his first missionary journey takes off, uh, doing battle with an actual sorcerer and coming out pretty emphatically on top. I'm sure you'll agree. But actually, the key event amidst all the magician stuff and the spontaneous divine judgment and all the stuff that would instantly grab our attention uh, is actually something that, that might get lost in all the kind of crash bang wallop of that sort of thing uh, a guy becomes a christian here a guy starts following jesus for the first time and and surely that is the focus of this passage the guy in question is a uh, sergius paulus he's not the most colorful character here but he's surely the focus why why do i say that well not only does he end up believing in jesus well but actually he may be the first proper gentile convert to christianity in the whole book of acts maybe even in the whole bible I'll let you kind of marinate on that for a minute. Those of you who've been with us through this series might well think of another couple of contenders for that title. The Ethiopian eunuch, for example, uh, or Cornelius. They were both Gentiles. But by Gentiles, I mean uh, non-Jewish people. But actually, for those guys, uh, they both clearly had some pretty significant links with Judaism already. They would both probably have been classed uh, as God-fearers. God-fearers was a term used in those days to describe someone who was uh, not ethnically Jewish or hadn't actually converted to Judaism, but would be sympathetic to Judaism and familiar with a lot of its traditions. However, this guy, Sergius Paulus, as far as we can see, was not a God-fearer in that sort of way. John Stott, uh, the, the famous Bible teacher writes this. He says, Luke surely intends us to view Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism. But we find out another important thing about this guy other than he uh, came to follow Jesus, and that is his job. Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Cyprus. Now, What's a proconsul, you might ask? Well, if you'd like the official jargon, I can give it to you. Proconsuls were Roman magistrates who headed the government in a senatorial province where no troops were required. Okay, so for those of you into your definitions, uh, that should do it for you. Uh, For the rest of us who might like it in plain English, basically, he was the big cheese on the island of Cyprus. Don't know if this is a a good way to look at it or not, but for me, he's somewhere between, uh, I guess, an MP and the Prime Minister, okay? He is head of the island, but that's under the jurisdiction of Rome, but he also is clearly exercising significant authority in his jurisdiction. Basically, this is a guy of significant cultural influence, in this case, political influence. Now, for me, as I'm going through the Bible, a question that's often in my mind is why did the author write this bit? Or why did the author include this story here and not another story? There would have been all sorts of people Paul would have met. Why does Sergius Paulus get a mention here? And actually, especially this is the case when the events are in prominent places in the story, like this one is, the very beginning of the first missionary journey. The very first Gentile, proper Gentile convert. I'm particularly asking the question, then, why is this here? Why has Luke included that? And actually, when we ask that question, uh, and then look at the rest of Acts, or the Acts as a whole, if you like, I think we get a pretty clear answer to that question. Actually, what Luke is doing here is highlighting an important feature of Paul's calling that he's actually already mentioned, and will go on to talk much more about, but that isn't often preached on in church. You see, Paul was a man who was called specifically to engage with people of significant 
cultural influence. We can see this as we fast forward through Acts and as we rewind. So first of all, let's cheat a bit and do what all kids are told not to do and kind of jump forward in the story. Okay, we're going to go 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 forward to see this, and then after that, let's rewind a bit uh, as well to see it as well. But fast forwarding first, if we do fast forward through Acts, we'll see that Sergius Paul has set something of a trend. In the next 15 chapters, we'll see that Paul is given opportunity after opportunity to share Jesus with the top influences wherever he goes. So let's whiz through. Acts 18, we can start, and we, we see that in Acts 18, Paul stands before yet another proconsul, this time Gallio in Corinth, and Gallio rules in Paul's favour. In Acts 21, Paul is, or once Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, it starts to really kick off regarding kind of meeting and uh, sharing the gospel with these influences, okay? First, he stands before a guy called Felix, and Felix is the procurator of Judea. Now, a procurator is one up from a proconsul. It's a procurator would be a governor, governor in a more important territory, okay? And Paul gets to share, he gets the chance to share the good news of Jesus with uh, Felix, this procurator, in detail. Acts 24, verse 24. Felix sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Felix actually doesn't listen to Paul a whole lot, and he leaves him in prison, which isn't great for Paul, uh, but it does give him the chance to meet yet another procurator, uh, Felix, Felix's successor, Porcius Festus. Okay, And uh, again, Paul gets to share with uh, Festus something of the message of Jesus. And Festus is so intrigued uh, by this message that when his two of his friends come to visit, he says to them, hey guys, come and see this guy Paul who we've got here in prison. You'll be really interested by this guy and what he has to say. And uh, these two friends of his aren't just any old friends. It's uh, King Agrippa and his wife Queen Bernice. So notice uh, Paul's t uh, met with these proconsuls. He's moved up to procurators. And here we've got an actual king, King Agrippa. And Paul doesn't just share the message with Agrippa. He virtually goes for an altar call at the end. In Acts 26, verse 27, he appeals for Agrippa to make a response to the message about Jesus. Now, again, Agrippa, while warm to Paul, uh, doesn't go for it. He doesn't become a Christian uh, then. And uh, what ends up happening is Paul gets sent off to Rome. And so after stopping off on the island of Malta, where, incidentally, uh, he heals the chief official of the island's dad, chief official of the island, notice a pattern here. <laughs> After he does that, he arrives in Rome, the capital city of the whole empire. And we don't uh, get any stories of his brushes with movers and shakers in Rome, uh, yet he has gone to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar to hear his case. And it's uh, certainly, uh, Im you'd certainly imagine after all we've seen before that Paul would have uh, been spending time with some of the top dogs of Roman society e and maybe even meeting Caesar himself there. The picture Luke gives us of Paul then is that he's someone who God leads time after time to people of political influence and who more often than not wins favour from them for the church even if they don't become Christians themselves. Why? Why is that? Well, if we rewind a bit from today's passage and look closely, I think we can see that Luke has already told us the answer to that question. Let's go back to, Luke, to Acts 9. It's right when Paul becomes a Christian. God tells us at that time, and Luke records it, what he's saving Paul to do. So Acts 9.15, this is what God says. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Did you catch it? 
I must have read the conversion of Paul a hundred times. And I, I didn't see it until I preached on this last time. What was Paul specifically chosen by God to do? Well, he was called to the people of Israel, to Jews. Well, of course he was. The Jewish people were still the backbone of the church. They were God's people. He was also called to, it says, to, you were called to carry my name before the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. And again, we'd say we know that. That's what Paul is famous for in many ways. But there's a third group, a specific group of Gentiles that he's called specially to. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. Paul is called to Jews and Gentiles generally, but he also has a specific call to a certain group within Gentile society, to kings. Now, I think we need to say this straight away. Uh, God isn't doing this because he thinks that influential people are more important than other people. Okay, that's clearly not the case. God doesn't send Paul to them specifically uh, because he values kings more than others. Now, God doesn't fall for the things that we fall for. He, he's not impressed by a, a winning smile or a, a position or certain status. Now, he sees through those things. Now, that, that's definitely not the case. He does this, actually, because God's wise to the way that we're wired and to the way that we as human beings see things. However it happens, and whether it's sensible or not, human beings have always chosen to listen to some people more than other people, to value the opinion of some over others. Human cultures are not shaped by everyone equally, and we all know this. So, for example, Diane Abbott's voice carries more weight than Isaiah's primary school teacher's voice. I think we'd all probably agree that's the case, whatever we think of politics. Actually, though, in our culture, it's not just politicians who carry such weight. People are more likely to listen to, say, Ed Sheeran's opinion on something than the MP for Brandwood, where this is my constituency. Cultural influence is not just in the hands of kings anymore, but actually it works very similarly. Now, we could ask the question, is it right for that person to have genuine influence over our culture and that person not to? Because when it comes to someone like Ed Sheeran, you might well ask that question. You know what? But we can ask that till we're blue in the face. The, the fact of the matter is they do, and we all kind of know that's how it works. And what we find out in Acts here is that God knows that too. And whether those people should be in those positions or not, in God's determination to win back fallen people, more often than not, he does choose to work within our fallen ways of doing things. And in the area of influence, this certainly seems to be the case. So therefore, in his plans to make inroads into Gentile culture, God chose straight away to raise up someone to go to people of significant cultural influence to pave the way for the message of Jesus. He knew that was going to be important. Actually, I don't just say that from the story of Paul. If Acts was all that we had in the Bible, we could probably make a strong case for this one. But when we take in the whole story of God's people in the Bible, we see this is actually how God has always worked. We've kind of tried to take in the whole book of Acts. <laughs> Why stop there? Let's go to the whole Old Testament, shall we, and look there <laughs> as well. Because as we see that, I think we see that to advance God's purposes at pretty much every stage throughout the Bible... God does the same thing. He calls people to carry influence themselves and to influence the key cultural influences. Okay, so let's do a whistle-stop tour, shall we? Right back to the start, okay? People have fallen. We, we've fallen from uh, the position we were made for, made in God's image, uh, but that image fractured and broken by our sin. But God breaks in and he uh, has a rescue plan for humanity. And he starts that rescue plan with this guy, Abraham. 
and he says to him, through your descendants, okay, uh, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. Now, the question though is, how does God move that along? Let's ask a specific question. How did God turn Abraham's descendants from essentially just a large extended family into an entire people group? Do you know how he does it? He calls Joseph to a king. Think to the story of Joseph. Joseph, through a whole load of misadventures, as many of you remember, is brought to a place where he wins the respect uh, of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and incidentally Egypt being kind of the cultural center of the world at that time, okay? And uh, as you may also know from the story, uh, the remarkable thing happens, Joseph himself becomes second in command in Egypt. God gives Joseph the ear of the king, and in turn, Joseph has his own cultural influence. And why does he do it? Well, he does it to rescue Jacob's family. Actually, they were going to starve to death otherwise. And to give uh, God's people a home they could grow into. How did he do it? He called Joseph to a king. But how then does God turn his people into a nation? Because just a kind of ragtag bunch, however big, is not going to do... Okay, they need to be a nation. Is being in Egypt gave them chance to to grow and uh, and to multiply. But how did they become a nation? Well, they became a nation through God uh, calling Moses to a king. Actually, God had prepared the way from the start of Moses' life. Moses, if you remember, the whole kind of stuck in the basket incident. Basket goes down the river. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket. Oh, this baby's cute. I'll have him. Okay, uh, Moses is brought up as uh, within the royal family as as kind of Pharaoh's daughter's uh, child. And uh, years later, then when Moses returns, uh, he uses these connections that he's got through God's uh, purposes that he's, uh, he's he's put through his life, and uh, it means that when he comes back to Egypt, say, "Let my people go." He can actually say that to Pharaoh's face. He doesn't have to phone up and get put on hold or be put in a queue or something. That's a remarkable thing. Like You can't just waltz in and talk to the king. Well, actually, Moses can. God had set that up. God had made that happen through embedding him in the royal family, giving him a, a position of cultural status. That was very important in that story. God gives Moses the ear of the king to eventually get God's people out of Egypt in a way that would glorify God the most. And also, of course, to allow God's people to become a nation in their own right. And so, as you know, may know, Israel, they stop being slaves. They, they leave Egypt. They go into their own land. They become a nation. But from that point, the history of, uh, of God's people in the Old Testament is kind of ups and downs and probably more downs than ups until the rather ignominious uh, exile from their own land, exiled into Babylon because of their idolatry and sin. And in those sort of days, if you were exiled, if your whole nation was exiled, it was quite likely that that would be the end of your culture. That would be the end of you. And there'd be many cases of, of nations that were exiled and just dispersed, and then that was really that as regards their existence as, a, as an identifiable culture again. So we've got to ask the question, how did God preserve his people while they were in exile? Well, we could look at a number of similar examples to this, but I'm just going to choose one. He calls Esther to a, you getting it yet? To a king. When Xerxes, the Persian king, agrees to eliminate all of God's people all over the Persian empire, killing, to kill all the Jews. Let's face it, it would have been a, a huge obstruction to God's redemptive purposes. On top of a whole load of other things. Well, when he does that, actually, God has already raised up preventative measures. He's got one of his people in the palace, Queen Esther. And she uses her influence 
and her calling to the king to foil the plot and keep God's people in existence. How? Because Esther's called to a king. Final thing. Final question. How did God bring his people back from exile? You're never going to guess, guys. Seriously. He calls someone to a king. This time, it's a someone called Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, as it says in the book that bears his name, was the cupbearer to the king. Now, I've always read that and thought of that as being a really, really menial position, like he was some sort of slave who kind of uh, couldn't even look in the king's face, just holding up the cup for the king to drink from, and then maybe rubs the side with the kind of <laughs> little, little tissue or something. But it wasn't like that at all. Actually, this was a position of incredible cultural clout. Once again, it gave Nehemiah the ear of the king, and Nehemiah used that position to get the king's favour to such an extent that the king agreed to help the people of uh, Israel rebuild Jerusalem for the returning exiles. He even lets Nehemiah go and help them. All throughout the Old Testament then, how does God advance his purposes? Well, while he was obviously calling his people to personal holiness and social kindness and observance of the covenant, obviously he was doing those things. It seems at the same time, his eyes were open and he was looking for individuals to be raised up to places of influence just the right time for the continuance of his purposes and as his purposes move on in the new testament we see he's at exactly the same thing again and it's like in the book of acts that he's looking down from heaven and he's saying right now is the time i want to advance my kingdom into the gentile world what will i need well obviously i'm going to need a a people who are faithful to me i'm going to need a people building attractive loving courageous communities a people being my witnesses to everyone they meet a people filled with the holy spirit i'm going to need all that stuff But I need something else as well. At the same time, I need some of my people to engage with the movers and shakers in society to pave the way for my church. And this is so important. I'm going to start with the main guy. I'm going to start with Paul. Paul, you're called to kings. So, obviously, we've we've taken in quite a lot today. The whole of Acts and then pretty much the whole of the Old Testament. We've pretty much done the whole lot. I'm not quite going to go into Revelation. (laughs) It's quite this morning, but... um, The question we've got to ask is, okay, so what? How does this affect us today? I'm aware I've opened up a huge topic, and there's lots more that could be said on this. And uh, for some of you, you might have not heard a sermon on this sort of topic before. But I would just like to end with three general points. It's not everything that could be said on this, but three general points to help us think through the topic of cultural influence in our situation, in our day and age. Okay? Point one. The church needs more Christians who exercise significant cultural influence today. The church needs more Christians who exercise significant cultural influence today. When we look at the Bible, we see that without gaining the ear of kings and without some of God's people rising to significant cultural influence themselves, the purposes of God would not have moved forward. I think similarly today, we could put it like this. Unless some of God's people gain significant cultural influence today, it is very hard to see how the kingdom of God is going to advance again in a significant way in our nation. We're going to need Esthers to stop lobby groups making laws that cripple churches. We're going to need Josephs to influence with wisdom that brings balance and stability again to our country. We're going to need Pauls who are able to carry themselves well with people of cultural clout and see some of those guys even come to know Jesus. That's the first point. Second point, something of a gear change. With that said, second point, 
we should be wary about chasing influence. We should be wary about chasing influence. You might have seen this talk building up to an almighty crescendo. Kind of go for it. Go after all the big wigs you know. Try to be as influential as you can. This is our new kind of slogan as Church Central. We're going for influence, all guns blazing. But actually, that's not where we're heading. I'd like as we, we just move onwards just to put the brakes on very slightly. Because I think we need to move forward from the position I've laid out so far very, very carefully. My, my caution is for two main reasons. Firstly, I think when we start talking about cultural influence, we've got to recognise our vulnerability in this area. But like I said a minute ago, this might be the first time some of you have ever thought about this or heard a talk on this. But for some of us, we've been thinking about this a lot because in the kind of Christian world, uh, say particularly the evangelical Christian world, this is a big thing. Cultural influence is, a, is something that lots of people are writing books about and thinking about and all that sort of stuff. We've got to recognize when we start thinking about this, we are vulnerable here because cultural influence comes very close to our major weakness as fallen humans. At least it raises the temptation to this. What's, what's the thing that throughout the history of humanity has been the temptation that's led us into the most trouble? You know what it is? That is isolated in the Bible. It's pride. It was right there in the Garden of Eden. It's been there ever since. Pride. It's our key weakness. And actually, when we start talking of cultural influence, we've got to be aware that at that moment, our key weakness is ready to step into play. Because actually, there's a very fine line between I want influence so I can advance God's kingdom and I want influence, well, just because I want influence. I want my voice to be heard. It's my time to shine, people. Chasing influence for its own sake, even if masked with religious language, whether it's done by individuals or churches or church movements for that matter, it's idolatry and it will end in nothing good. And whenever we approach this topic, however good our motives, we've got to be self-aware enough to recognise that danger. So that's my first reason for caution. My second reason for caution is this, that however you look at this topic here, I think it's fair to say that the Bible makes it clear that there are actually far more important things for us to do than gaining cultural influence. Things like, I don't know, let's, let's pluck a random one out of the air, shall we? Um, something like loving your neighbour, for example. And here we come to a problem, because the problem is this. When it comes to chasing influence, actually that can clash against those other priorities we have as Christians. Because if chasing influence becomes your number one priority, what can happen is that your mind can very easily be so out there and thinking about kind of, I want to reach this group of people over there and I want to impact society in this way and I want to change structures and uh, overthrow this system over here. Our eyes are so much out there, actually, to people who will probably never meet and who realistically we can't really make that much of an impact on anyway. And what happens? Well, our attention is shifted so we ignore the people who God has called us to look after, those under our noses, our neighbours even if they're not the ones that society regards with much favour. In fact, let's rephrase that, especially if they're those people. We're called to love them. That's our primary responsibility as Christians. Now, because of these dangers then, it's interesting that in the Bible, while God shows a keen awareness of how the structures of influence work and how his people do need to interact with these structures, 
there is no instruction for us to proactively chase after the influence at all. And so what we see in the Bible, actually, is that at the right times, when necessary, God himself raises up individuals to those positions of influence, even when they weren't specifically chasing it. This is exactly what we see in the passage we started in, in Acts 13. Think about this. Paul is a guy who, on his conversion, is giving this word. He said, look, you're called to kings. I don't know if any of you guys had a, had a word, a prophetic word or something given to you when you uh, first became a Christian, maybe at your baptism. Let's imagine at your baptism someone said, uh, I feel you're called to be a missionary in China. Now, obviously, you would, I hope you would have weighed that and thought, well, could that be true? Uh, or might that be slightly off beam? But you know what? It wouldn't have been unreasonable or gung-ho for you to kind of push that slightly and, I don't know, maybe learn uh, Cantonese or Mandarin or start learning those things or maybe even just go to China on holiday to check it out, see, does this fit at all? You know, you push the doors with things like that. So similarly for Paul, he's been given this word. He goes to Cyprus. You'd have thought, well, he's thinking, I'm just starting on kind of my missionary journey. He's like, called to King's Word. Maybe I should find out who the, the big wig is around here and uh, knock on their door and kind of see, see what happens. Is this how it happens in Acts 13? No, actually, not at all. Acts 13 verse 7 tells us what happens. It's the other way around. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, sorry, because he wanted to hear the word of God. You see, the proconsul sent for them. God called Paul to influence, but then he himself proactively carved out the opportunities to make that happen. So what do we do as a result of all this stuff then? Is, it, is this simply a sit back and trust God sort of message? Actually, I do think there are some things we can do, really. And though there's much more that can be said on this topic, I, I think I can very briefly sketch out the main one for us. I don't think the Bible teaches us to chase cultural influence, but I think it certainly encourages all of us to make ourselves available for God to raise us into positions of influence if and when he sees fit. So the third and final point I'd like to make is make yourselves available to be raised to influence if God sees fit. Make yourselves available to be raised to influence if God sees fit. All the examples I've used in the Bible up to now have one thing in common, I think. All of the people I've mentioned who are called to influence in the wider society are living their lives significantly outside of the gathered community of believers. Joseph is away from his family thrown in a hole by his family, actually, uh, and kind of sold as a slave into Egypt. Esther and Nehemiah, well, they're in exile. The clue is in the word. Exile. They are away from the people of God. Paul is on a mission outside of the first century Middle Eastern Bible Belt. These guys, all of them, were living their lives in the world that God then called them to influence. Might sound obvious. How's, who's God going to call to influence in the world? Well, people who actually are living and spending time and giving their attention to the world. Now, I do recognize that in most of these cases, God grabbed them pretty forcefully and put them there without them being involved a whole lot. But I think there's a good case to be made that he shouldn't have to take such invasive action today. You see, there was no reason for Joseph to think about going to Egypt on his own. There, there really wasn't. It wasn't going to be a, a, a top holiday destination for him. Okay, Or there's no reason for Nehemiah to kind of think as a young person, how am I going to serve God in my generation? I know I'm going to emigrate to Babylon. Now, th those things wouldn't have happened. However, there is every reason for us to live our lives in the thick of our culture. 
Jesus made his heart on this one pretty clear. When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 17, 15, he prays for his followers and he prays this. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What did he mean? Well, he wants us, all of us as his followers, in the thick of our culture. He wants us rubbing shoulders with the world, taking our jobs seriously, welcoming people into our lives who don't know Jesus, getting involved in theirs, serving our local communities. Please note, if I take them out of the world, he's not saying my prayer is not that you take them up to heaven right now. They've got some other things to do down here, you know, uh, Father. No, he's not saying that. If I take them out of the world, he means something different. How could we be taken out of the world? Well, I think the most obvious way in my experience would be by treating the church community not as a springboard to propel us into the world, but as a bunker that we use to hide away from the world. Some of you here, you might have been thinking all along, well, interesting or <laughs> uninteresting as this is, I'm definitely not called to kings. I'm not ever going to be a mover and shaker in British culture. And you know, for most of us, ultimately that will be the case, you know. But maybe if that is true of you, and even if you could recognize that now, because we're never too sure, really, I'd still like you to take note of the direction of the book of Acts that we find ourselves hitting today. Today, what we are doing in the book of Acts, we start at the part of the book where Paul starts to go. He goes from the safety and security of the church he knew in Antioch. And not only that, we, we see the part of Acts where the gospel starts to go too. The gospel is going out from the familiarity of Israel to regions beyond, to new places. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to start living your life in exactly the same manner. Go! Get out there! For Paul, it meant preaching to crowds and addressing synagogues and arguing philosophers and witnessing to kings. You know what, for you, it might look slightly differently. It may mean starting by simply building relationships with your kids' friends' parents, or going to your work summer barbecue, or having your neighbours over for dinner. And please recognise, even if your light never shines beyond those people, it would be well worth you doing just that. However, for some of you who do that, God may have some other things for you too. He may want you to rise, to, he might want to rise you to influence in those social groups, in your workplace, in your community, even beyond that. But you do have to be out there and available for that to happen. I mean, I do wonder whether there have been time in recent years in our country where God has looked down from heaven and thought, okay, right, I know what, I know what I'm going to do now. This is how I'm going to further my purposes. I want to see who can I raise up to influence British society, to pave the way for what I'm planning to do. Right, who's, who's here? Let's look down. Um, wait a minute. Where are they? Only to find that we're all too busy in our churches. That essentially, we've left the world. We've hidden ourselves under a bowl. You know what? That's how not to make yourself available to God calling you to influence. Paul puts the matter more positively in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. And it's these verses I want to leave you with as we close today. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Paul instructs the Thessalonian Christians like this. He says this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders 
and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul, as we've seen, is he's the influence guy. He was set apart for this influence stuff. How does he pass that on to Christians? How does he encourage then Christians to live? It's very simple. Two things in these verses that we see. Firstly, work hard in your jobs. Secondly, live in such a way that you win the respect of other people. Work hard in your jobs and live in such a way that you win the respect of other people. You know what? I think there are probably about a million reasons why that's very sound advice for us as Christians. Well, I've got another to add to the list. And that is that by doing this, you are making yourself available for God to raise you to win respect even more widely. And for some of us, like Paul, it could lead even to places of social influence yourself and a call to kings. Now, I recognize there's a lot in here today. I I recognize this is, in many ways, uh, a very hurried opening to a big subject that we don't often preach on, as I've said. And if this stuff resonates with you in any way, I'd, I'd love to chat to you more about this. I'd love this to be a conversation starter. So please do get in touch with me and we'll, we'll talk about that in more depth. But I think we can summarize what we've seen as follows. Firstly, God knows that it is important for his people to gain influence to move forward his purposes. Secondly, he doesn't want us to chase after influence out of pride though, but he does want us to make ourselves available to his call in this area. And finally, we do that by refusing to leave the world and hide in the church and by living our lives in such a way that we win the respect of those around us. My prayer is that as we do that, he'll raise some of us up to win the respect of kings and start influencing our culture in ways that will help the church to thrive again in our nation. We so desperately need it.